0: As we prepare to proclaim and to apprehend uh, the word of God for us in this day, let us join our hearts in prayer. Grant, gracious God, that the words of Scripture and of our hearts and the meditations of our spirits are joined in the dynamic interplay between your Holy Spirit, the text, and our insights and Love for you may make this word a true expression of your love, and that our congregation may be empowered uh, to live uh, into the ministry into which you have called us as disciples of Jesus. Amen. So, two passages uh, from Scripture this morning first from the Gospel of John in the 15th chapter. And then, uh, secondly, from the first letter of John, let me just say that uh, the two Johns are almost certainly not the same authors, uh, the author of the Gospel and the author of the three letters of John, uh, written by different individuals, both named John, or perhaps uh, the one who wrote the letters of John was a disciple of the evangelist, who, in a sense, was writing to explicate further and to uh, work out some of the implications of the theology of John's gospel, all written in the same spirit of that great insight of the fourth evangelist. Scripture is not to be taken literally. Scripture is to be understood as a metaphor, an extended uh, expression of people's understanding about how God has revealed God's self to us, in the world and how God's purposes are being worked out uh, through us and with us and for us, Uh, written across centuries by people of very different backgrounds. It is a compendium of theological insight, in a sense, a a record of the development of human consciousness about the nature of God. But it is, at heart, a metaphor. A metaphor does not name reality because these are words about God, and ultimately we cannot name God in the way that you might uh, name a plant or an insect or some kind of form of life or physical phenomenon in the world. Metaphors do not name and explain. Metaphors point to reality and evoke um, our response to that reality. So clearly, Jesus, uh, when he speaks and says, I am the door, he's not speaking literally, he's not a door. I am the vine. Well, he's not literally a vine. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. These are metaphorical expressions of the deep inner reality. I'm the gate. In this passage, it comes from his uh, closing soliloquy, as it were, on the last night of his life. He's on the brink of destruction. He knows, he anticipates the fact that at the end of this meal with his disciples, he will fall into the hands of the Roman authority in which the religious authorities of his own particular faith, Judaism, will collude and that this encounter will yield his crucifixion, an ignominious defeat, a terrible act, an incredibly excruciating form of torture unto death that is visited upon the enemies of the empire. It's so important for us to remember that Jesus is killed because his life, which is dedicated to love, is in essential opposition to the prevailing orders of oppression, the protection of privilege, the accumulation of wealth into fewer and fewer hands, the abnegation of the essential dignity of each person, the denial of the essential humanity of vast stretches of the human family, an evil and wicked system of Rome which continues to express itself in different ways across the centuries, even into our own time. They don't kill Jesus because they like him. The authorities come down so hard because his essential insights are an essential assault upon, opposition to, denial of, the power of empire and of oppressive forces. So when you hear these words, understand that Jesus is speaking to a community, the early Christians, his disciples who will make the core of that new movement, which will ultimately become something we call the church in a number of centuries, that he's writing to and speaking to a community to bolster their faith and to help them understand why they have been called into a relationship with Jesus and with God. I am the authentic vine, Jesus said, and my father is the vine grower. Let me pause here. This image of Israel, the people of God, the 12 tribes, the sons of Israel, the sons and daughters of Israel, is an old metaphor that Israel is a vine that's tended by God. I am the authentic vine. My father is the vine grower. He removes every branch in me that bears no fruit. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes and makes it so that it may bear more fruit. You have already been cleansed by the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. This is a theme that will continue throughout the remainder of the 15th chapter of abiding, remaining, trusting in, relying upon, not running away, scurrying into the shadows in the face of opposition and the threat to your life, but abiding, living, immersing yourself in this relationship. Abide in me as I abide in you. Just as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who abide in me, and I in them, bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Whoever does not abide in me is thrown away like a branch and withers. Such branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Let me pause here. He's not talking about individuals who are being selected and cast into the fiery pit of hell. This is uh, understanding that is so often applied to this text, thinking of it as essentially an allegory, like it's an Aesop's fable. This stands for that. It's not an allegory. It's a metaphor that's based on the reality that the people understand fully that branches that bear fruit are pruned. They're also cut off, so they'll bear more fruit. And the dead branches are cut off because they're not bearing fruit. This is just part of the way the world Works When a vineyarder takes a vine and plants it, the vineyarder continues to prune and cut back the vine for at least two years before it will y- allow, be allowed to yield grapes because the vineyarder doesn't want all the growth potential in the vine to go in the production of grapes. He wants that vine to become fully immersed, all the growth potential in the development of that vine which is planted in the soil and then only then can grow if you abide in me and my words abide in you ask for whatever you wish and it will be done for you my father is glorified is glorified by this that you bear much fruit and so become my disciples As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love, and if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete." There's a wonderful quote from Irenaeus, who was a second-century bishop in the city of Lyon in France, in which he says, "'A human being is the glory of God, "'and the human being who lives in God "'is God's dream fulfilled.'" You are the beloved of God. Your neighbor is the beloved of God. Your enemy is the beloved of God. The glory of God. Those who disagree with you is the beloved of God. But for us... To be joined in that vine, to become a branch of that vine, yields the fruit of compassion and love, of forgiveness, of courage. To love the world, not in some kind of sweet sentimentality of saying, everything is fine and will be all right in the end, because we know that that's not true. There is so much arrayed against the purposes of God. We have to be valiant and courageous and true and to stand up and to name that which is evil and to eradicate that which is oppressive to God's people. That is love. Sometimes, as we wrote, love looks like accountability. But this is the power of love the transformative purposes of the world. In the Bible, love is not an emotion at all. (laughs) You know, this idea we have of love as as an emotion, a feeling, it's a non-biblical concept. Love in the Bible is really not a noun, even. It uses a noun. But really, love is a verb. What do you do expresses our love. And so the author of the first letter to John wanted to build on that idea about how do we, in fact, love. In the fourth uh, chapter, beginning at uh, verse 7 of the first letter of John, we find these words, beloved, let us love one another. Let me pause here. Beloved. Agape toy is the Greek word. As you know, Greek has a number of words for love, unlike our own inadequate and somewhat stunted English language. In the language of love, the word used for love by Jesus is agape, which means an unconditional love, a love that gives not expecting recompense. Not given because someone deserves it, but because you want, you are drawn, you are motivated, you are living in love. Love that is given without worry about the cost or expecting a reward. This is a very different way of thinking about love uh, in our own particular context, right? Where love is essentially part of a transactional relationship. So when Jesus, uh, when John writes in this letter, beloved, he uses the word toy, those who are the beloved of God, who are loved by Jesus, loved by John, loved by the community unconditionally. So as I read this uh, passage, I'm going to say agape, when we come across the English language, inadequate uh, translation, as love. So agape, that divine, unconditional love. Beloved, agape toy, let us agape one another, because agape is from God. Everyone who lives in agape is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not, Agape does not know God, for God is agape, this unconditional love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is agape. This love, not that we loved agape, God, but that God loves agape, us, and sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Agape toi, beloved. Since God is agape toi, loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we have agape, if we agape one another, God lives in us and God's love is perfected in us. And then down to verse 16, for God is love, agape, and those who abide in agape abide in God. From John 15, and God abides in them. So, which came first, the indicative or the imperative? English teachers among us will be happy by this uh, sermon title, I hope. Which came first, the indicative or the imperative? The way in which we live, the way in which our culture suggests to us our theology, is that the imperative comes before the indicative. The indicative is God loves us. And the imperative is we love each other. We are commanded to agape each other. So we tend to think that if we love each other, then God will love us. When, of course, it's exactly the opposite. We have taken the essential insight of the author of the letter to John, which he gets from the Gospel of John, which comes from the words and insights in theology and life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that God loves us first, the indicative, and from that comes the imperative. And therefore, we love each other. We must love each other. And in this letter, John will write, those who say I love God and hate their brothers or sisters, they are what? What does he say? Does he say they're mistaken? Does he say that they don't understand? No. He says, those who say I love God and they hate their brothers and sisters are liars or liars. For those who do not love a brother or a sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have is this. Those who love God, indicative, imperative, must love their brothers and sisters also. Jesus, of course, completely redefines who is my brother and my sister. And in a number of ways, in his parables uh, and in the way in which he lived his life welcoming literally anybody who came across his path who was in search of help. So in the redefinition of who is my brother and who is my sister, who is my neighbor, understanding that every human being in all of creation is in fact part of the great family, the product of God's love. That if we love God, Our love for each other becomes derivative of God's love for us. Very often it can seem as though loving everybody is impossible. It seems like a task that's beyond us. And if we are relying upon our own strength and our own emotions, (laughs) our own emotions, the way we feel, then it is impossible if we rely only upon our own, how we feel about it, and our own strength and resources, then it is impossible to love everyone. But if our love for each other is not dependent upon our resources and our will and our desires, but rather is derivative of the fact that God loves us, you, me, all of us, then we cannot help but To love. So allowing ourselves, as Jesus says, to abide in his love, that is to say, to immerse ourselves in the love of God, to truly be in that place where we allow ourselves to experience the love of God filling us and overfilling us and sustaining us, then we cannot help but to love. So the answer to the question, which came first, the indicative or the imperative, the answer, of course, is the indicative. God loves us, comes before the imperative, we must love each other. And loving each other means living the kind of life that Jesus lived, facing down the forces that are arrayed against God, not having a sweet and warm feeling about everybody, but facing into the trouble of our days and the evils of our age, and the systems that oppress and hold back the fullness of the God given abilities and talents and potential invested in every single person born on the face of the planet. Until we do that, we're not really loving God. We are enjoined upon, it's enjoined upon us. It is an injunction, not in the sense of constraining us, but it is a commandment which liberates us to be loved. Those who live in love live in God, and God lives in you, amen.